Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our political institutions are failing us and ideas for fixing them. It's just me, James Wallner. I am a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about a very important issue, which is why the federal government appears to be budgeting like I did in college. And if there is going to be a change in this and where we're going, and we're going to talk about the fiscal impact of various events, things like the pandemic, uh, inflation, the war in Ukraine, all these things that I didn't have to grapple with, which are legitimate uh, crises or legitimate challenges. And they pose particular problems uh, to the fiscal health of our nation. And so we're going to talk about those and what to do about them. And joining me today to talk about all of those things is someone I'm really excited to have on the podcast, someone who is super smart on all of these issues, someone who hopefully didn't budget like I did in college, who didn't budget like a Thomas Jefferson, maybe someone more like an Alexander Hamilton probably is a better person to have uh, to give insights about our fiscal health. But Jonathan Bidlack, he's the director of the governance program at the R Street Institute, and he oversees the fiscal and budget policy project. So, you know, that's relevant to what we're talking about and the legislative branch capacity working group. So, Jonathan, welcome to Politics in Question. What's going on? Not too much. I mean, uh, it's been a little bit happening, I guess, out there. If you, uh, you've been following the budget and so forth, but uh, I mean, everybody has been following the budget, right? I mean, well, they followed it for about a week, right? Or maybe that when I say a week, maybe a day or two. And then, you know, it kind of everyone forgot after that. So I guess Will Smith and the, uh, and, you know, the, the slap <laughs> heard around the world kind of just pushed that off the agenda, right? Maybe. I mean, that, if it weren't for that, we would still be talking about it. Probably not. I think my I think my contention would be that uh, everyone was still would have forgotten about it, regardless of what else was going on. So, in full disclosure to our listeners, I I know Jonathan quite well. I work with Jonathan on a, a on a regular basis at the Archery Institute. Jonathan gets to um, oversee all of my work and make sure that I'm I'm on the straight and narrow. So, I guess Jonathan is my boss. So. There you go. But I'm not going to let that stop me. I'm going to ask him a lot of really hard questions today. I'm going to kind of aim. I'm coming in hot and I'm aiming for the heart, John. And so I'd um, expect nothing less. First of all, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about your work, what you find interesting, what gets you going in the morning. And uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, just in general, what you think about where we are fiscally in this nation. And tell us how you budgeted in college. <laughs> well, I don't know that I quite budgeted like the federal government. I like to think I budgeted even then a little bit better than the, than we have been now. But I mean, I don't even think um, I budgeted in college. Does it? I mean, just which which may be an improvement over over yeah. what the federal government's doing, right? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I think you know my background's in in economics and in, in budget policy. I guess it's something that I uh, maybe a little bit fell into. I mean, I worked in finance after college, so I have that kind of background and. Uh, got involved in politics. And I don't know, I mean, it's a lot different, I guess, when you're talking about the public sector and, and, and budgeting, because, you know, there's just not any real incentive to do a good job, right? I mean, if you're, if you're some company or you're a family, you, you may not have some sort of formal budgetary process, but you better know what's coming in and what's going out because, you know, that business is going to fail or, you know, your family is going to fall on tough times. But in the context of the federal government in particular, that incentive doesn't really exist, right? And you talk about this in so many contexts in, in terms of uh, why our current institutions are failing us and why current elected officials don't really uh, feel the need to, to do their job or sort of take action, I guess, if you will. And so I think the budgetary space is in many ways the manifestation of a lot of those problems because you basically just have a lot of members who 
to the degree that they that they care about budgeting, it's oftentimes as it relates to their own elections. But a lot of the problems that we're talking about, usually anyway, tend to be over the longer term. And so, you know, what's the incentive to go and look at entitlements, for example? There's really no incentive to go and do that. And I think one of the interesting things, if you want to call it that at the moment, is that you know, there's a lot of short term or a number of short term issues that are going on. And so you have a lot of policymakers, I think, that are scrambling to try to figure out what are the causes of inflation? What should our, our, our policies be? Because, you know, I would argue that for a long time, I think members basically operated under the assumption that from a from a budgetary standpoint, they could do whatever they want and there wouldn't be consequences or in a worst case scenario, there would be consequences, but down the road when they were going to be out of office. And so, the interesting thing now, whether you're talking about you know the impact of the war in uh, war in Ukraine or you're talking about inflation or whatever else it might be, is that I think there's a lot more focus on what we're doing right now and and what the proper policies are, and so maybe that's an opportunity. I don't know. That's my that's my optimistic spin anyway at the moment. Well, yeah, we always got to be optimistic. It's like the number one rule for people who don't budget is you know it's all you just got to hope and expect that that money is going to come from somewhere when you need it. I think this is probably what Thomas Jefferson did. We go to his house and visit it and it's, you know, it's great. But not to mention, I mean, even still, I mean, when we talk about budgets today, I mean, it's not the same thing as what it was 50 years ago or, or what people have been thinking about when they, you know, think about their own personal finances. I mean, most of the spending that's taking place isn't even being voted on on a year by year basis. We're not, we're not reassessing authorizations. You know, there's a ton of stuff that's on autopilot. There's even a lot of movement to have more stuff be, you know, made into mandatory spending so that we don't have to assess it on a, on an annual basis. And so it's even tricky because, you know, people go and they look at the president's budget and they say, you know, oh man, like, isn't this really important? Shouldn't we really scrutinize this? But even if it were important or we were, you know, going to go and take the time to scrutinize it, you're still probably only looking at, you know, 35% of the of the overall federal budget. And, and that doesn't even count things like, you know, if you think about spending on COVID, for example, in the last couple of years, or the overseas contingency fund, right, that that basically goes and spends for, for wars overseas, or a lot of these sorts of things, you know, hurricanes and natural disasters and floods and things like this, all this stuff takes place off budget anyway. And so, I think there's sometimes I think a lot of political scientists or sort of people who are, you know, in our line of work like to say, well, if we just if we just put this perfect process in place, it's going to solve all these problems. But it's oftentimes not that simple because the things that are ultimately important aren't necessarily the things that we're studying or the things that we're looking at on, our, on a regular basis. Right. And I want to kind of take a step back for our listeners real quick and just explain a couple of terms. One, uh, mandatory spending, direct spending there's two kinds of spending. One is the discretionary side, and discretionary simply refers to the annual appropriations bills, things that Congress has to pass, has to do every year. And then you have mandatory spending. And mandatory spending, without getting too uh, into the weeds here, it's, uh, it's simply spending that Congress passes once and then is on autopilot. There's an eligibility criteria for people who get it, for programs that get it, for instance, like Medicare, if you're old enough to get it, right? And then there's a benefit calculation or a benefit formula that, that basically then tells you how much money you get. And then those two things, uh, the number of people who are eligible, and then the benefit formula, the calculation that is already written into law or is a regulation, those two things then determine the spending. It's out of Congress's hands, so to speak. But, and another thing is the one of the things that we've done with budgeting is that we've increasingly, as budgets have gotten tight, and I'm reminded of the Schoolhouse Rock 
Um, you know, we all know about the, you know, how a bill becomes a law. There's another fabulous schoolhouse rock video on budgeting. And it's not the federal government. It's about a, a guy and his son wants to go to this band camp or in like the Rose Bowl somewhere or Pasadena. And he sings this whole song that dad does about where his money goes and how you budget to save up for things. Um, but it, it reveals that budgets are about priorities. You set priorities, you make decisions, and then you, you know, allocate resources to those priorities. And that's a really important thing. We don't really prioritize in that sense, like you said, Jonathan, anymore, I don't think. And another thing that, about budgets that's really interesting is that every budget balances. That seems odd to say, right? Because you know, a budget, we don't have a balanced budget, right? We have a deficit, we have a big debt, but the budget's still balanced because every budget has to balance. The money going out has to equal the money coming in. We just make up the difference between revenues and the money going out by borrowing that money. So the but the money basically balances, we just borrow it. And that's the reason why we have this big debt and this deficit that keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And in times, the public will kind of get concerned about it, right? They get concerned and they say, we should do something about it. Like in 2010 and 11, I think was the last time it was really on top of their agenda. And in those times, the Congress turns to procedural rules. They're like, can we come up with a, a bunch of rules to force us to do what we can do right now, right? We need to be forced to either tax more or spend less. And so, but we're not going to do that right now because we can't, but we're going to create this complicated thing. And then this, this complicated rule is going to force us to do that. But then it turns out it never does. The Budget Control Act, which was about spending caps, actually, we spend more than we did that those caps set out. We always spend more than the caps set out. And the budget we have now, the unified budget, it itself was a gimmick that Lyndon Johnson embraced in the 1960s to get a balanced budget overnight, which is like, boom, we just kind of rearrange the chairs on the deck shelf. We get a balanced budget. Boom, I can run as someone who's really knows what he's doing here. So, I mean, what is it? What is it going to take? Is it just that we need to find the right procedural solutions, the right set of rules, or is it a political will issue? Is it a little bit of both? Uh, what do you think about all that? Well, you know, I mean, I said my background's in economics, and I think that, you know, a lot of politicians and, and you know, political scientists both like to pretend that politics drives economic outcomes. But one of the things that we're learning, certainly at the moment, is that sometimes the economics actually can drive the politics. And so, you know, when things are going well and there's no inflation or growth is strong or unemployment's low, then, you know, nobody really necessarily cares about fiscal responsibility. But as, as soon as things start to go south, they start to think about, well, what should we be doing differently? And so I think that we're in a situation now where policymakers on both sides are starting to think a little bit more about, you know, what those consequences might be and and, and how to act differently. And, and now, that's not to say that they're going to act dramatically differently, right? It may just be lip service. I mean, if you look at Biden's budget, for example, right, it proposes spending trillions and trillions of dollars, even though we're in an inflationary environment that we haven't seen in 40 years. And so, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that those outcomes will be immediately different, but it's possible after November, that will be the case. And even if you look at, you know, Biden's rhetoric when his budget was unveiled, there was definitely a lot more, at least lip service to concerns about the deficit. Um, you look at the types of things that, you know, Senator Manchin has been saying, for example, right? He's been concerned about inflation for a long time, which was essentially why he, you know, was the stick in the mud with respect to, to build back better. So my view is that Sure, rules matter. I mean, I would I would take a little bit of issue with you on the Budget Control Act in, in that 
I agree that we spent way more than than the caps over the over the you know the decade that they were in, in place. Um, but I do think that there's some value in having expectations, and even if you spend beyond that, uh, you know, it's at least it's at least relative to what those caps are. It gives a talking point, so to speak, for in this case, fiscal conservatives. So I do think there was value there, even if there were you know constant adjustments to those caps. But you know, my view is that at the end of the day, the thing that's going to matter the most is whether or not there are economic consequences to to the actions of policymakers. And I think that you know, if you don't if you don't see those those consequences, then there's really no incentive to act differently. And one of the mistakes, or one of the ways, I guess I'm I'm very critical of a lot of fiscal conservatives is that I think that we focus too much on on sort of the national debt talking point, and we miss, in a sense, the forest for the trees. I mean, you know. Who cares about their kids and grandkids down the road? Well, you know, yeah, sure, everyone everyone does to some degree, but people tend to care a lot more about the here and now. And so, when you use that kind of talking point and you say that, you know, yeah, the debt the debt could present these dangers down the road, it's a lot harder to to sort of get people to care about that relative to the difficulties that they're having at the moment. And you know, I, I like to make the comparison a lot to the debate over climate change because it's in many ways it's a similar issue. I mean, people understand whether or not, you know, people have different views obviously on the issue, but the concept is that there's there's a really big harm and we need to take action now to go and deal with that harm. But if you look at the way that progress has been made on on that issue, it hasn't been just by talking about that long-term point. It's by, it's been by talking about or tying things to to short-term outcomes, right? Whether or not it's legitimate or not, you know, talking about, you know, the severity of hurricanes or particular floods or, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, And so I think that there's something to be learned there from the standpoint of, of fiscal conservatives in terms of how we talk about the impact of poor fiscal policy. And, you know, this is why I always argue that I think that spending is the core problem. It's not just, it's not just talking about the debt because, if you're spending money via the public sector on things that are, you know, generally less productive now, or you're taxing people more than they otherwise might need to be, those are consequences right now. Or if you're, or if you're having inflation, right, as a result of uh, really expansionary fiscal policy, that's a consequence in the short term. And so, you know, I always say that spending really is the twofer issue. I mean, if you if you do figure out a way to control spending, well, there's no longer that incentive to raise taxes anymore because why do you need to do that if you're not if you're not spending beyond your means? And so I think there needs to be from a messaging standpoint a little bit more of a of a realignment in terms of the way people talk about these issues to orient it toward the things that people are actually thinking about today, coupled with probably admittedly some sort of economic pressure from from the outside. Actually, I agree with you wholeheartedly on the on the rules piece. I think it does it helps make the political argument I think a little bit more salient, and it gives you kind of a benchmark. But let me ask you one more general question about uh, the kind of where we are, and then let's turn to some of these uh, individual events. But you know, we talk about the debt, and the debt is simply, and I agree with you, conservatives or fiscal conservatives tend to focus on these kind of big abstract things, and they don't really kind of have a salience for the here and now, but. To what extent is it the game changed completely as well? You know, I'm not an economist. I, I, I'm a political scientist and I like theory and institutions. So, I mean, maybe there's some similarity, but I was uh, speaking with a, a friend of mine who is kind of more in the economics uh, sphere as well. And at one point he said, you know what, you're just going to get money. America's going to keep getting money. And so there's no real at least for the time being. And what do I mean by that? Other countries, other people are going to buy treasuries and fund our largesse. Why? Why are they going to do that? Because let's just pretend for a second that you and I are billionaires 
and we live in, say, Cameroon. We can live in Luxembourg. We can live, you know, wherever. But we're billionaires. Maybe you are. I'm not. But we say we are, right? Where are you going to put your money? Where are you going to put it? There's only so many places you can park money of that magnitude. And yes, even if you don't get a great return on it, maybe even if you have a negative interest rate, where are you going to put your money? You, could, I would pay somebody to not steal my money. And therefore, the rule of law in America is one of the things that makes us so attractive. It's not our economy, God knows, it seems to me. I mean, that partly because of it, but it's the, the security, I think. It's the rule of law. It's one of the reasons why people invest and there's opportunities to invest. And it's one reason why people send their money here. And to what extent do we have at least, you can't say permanent, but a very long-term outflow of wealth from the developing world and other places around the world to America and to the West to fund us and balance our budgets and mean that we don't have to do it ourselves. And to what extent do you think the kind of current kind of contempt we have, I'm going to be strong about this, but the current contempt we have for rules like in the Senate or, you know, the executive branch just writing laws or the judicial branch just deciding that it can decide whatever it wants to hell with the separation of powers and the idea of tyranny and Federalist 47. To what extent do these other things begin to undermine this sense of certainty and the rule of law in our country. And they don't even have anything to do with economics in the direct sense. And But they could make it harder for us to borrow money in the long term. Do you, are you following me here? I mean, this yeah, is kind no, of I'm going off the reservation a little no, bit. No, no, I think I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. I mean, I mean, look, I mean, the, the, the rule of law and the way that the U.S. has operated for a long time has been the source more than anything else, I think, of our of our strength and our wealth going back to the post-World War II era. So I think there I think there is a lot of truth to that. I mean, one of the things I think that a lot of people get wrong is, you know, they'll say things like, mm, that you know, the Chinese own so much of our debt. This is a huge problem. Well, Actually, that's a that's a pretty great thing. You know, I actually think that we should probably we probably want China to own more of our debt. I mean, yeah, what is that saying? Like if you owe the bank fifteen thousand dollars or something, they own you. But if you owe the bank like fifteen million, you own the bank. Like, yeah, that's it. And and, it, and there's even more to say than that. I mean, you know, if you look at, you know, Russia, for example, right now, you know, and, and the actions they've taken, I mean, Putin since 2014 took a lot of actions to decouple his economy from from the West, right, or at least from the United States. And so, to the degree that you have that level of integration, there are a lot of costs that come from that, no doubt. Um, but there are a lot of benefits too. And and I think sometimes we overlook the fact that you end up with a more stable, you know, world society, if you will, um, when you have those kinds of integrations. And so, and you're right. I mean, from the United States' standpoint, I mean, you know, obviously, many people have pointed out before, sort of our our status as the world's reserve currency. And the reason that exists is because we have, you know, a really well-educated, a really productive workforce. And that that matters a lot. But you're totally right. I mean, if you're, you know, if you have wealth in other places, there's risk to having that wealth being parked in other assets. And so, you know, there can be returns on that, right, to compensate you for it. But a lot of people generally like stability. And so, you know, it's, um, yeah, I think, I think it's, I think you're spot on. I think that these are, um, these are things that sometimes the public discourse just gets, gets backwards. You know, I don't know if I would say that, you know, some of the individual shenanigans or whatever it is going on per se in the, the House and Senate, you know, 
create a, a huge risk. But I think that I think that over time, right, it's a it's sort of like how Tom Coburn used to say, you know, how do you get this big national debt? You know, well, you, it's sort of a, by a bunch of little things adding up over time. I think that a similar concept exists with respect to the rule of law is that any one thing doesn't necessarily go and undermine it by itself. But to the degree that you have, you know, uh, repetitive incursions over time, you end up in a situation where where the perspective or the, or the perceived strength of that of that rule of law, I think, is weakened. But I think you hit on the thing that a lot of people don't recognize, which is that that fundamental belief in the rule of law, um, you know, rule of law over men is a big part, not just of sort of a strength in a military context, but uh, but also from an economic one as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's more not that like the nuclear option per se in the Senate is causing something, but more it reflects the kind of reaction to it and the, and the bipartisan embrace of kind of the contempt of the rules reflects a the kind of erosion of this of this thing that's so valuable to us. Look, I mean, if you're a billionaire, I mean, if I'm a billionaire, I'm, I think I'd buy some art and some boats. So I'm probably not the boat. Maybe the art's okay, but the boats not a good idea. But I don't know a lot of boats. I'd like boats. That'd be great. You're, so, you're like the boat bug, right? You're not a gold bug. You're a boat bug. Yeah, I mean, everybody on another occasion we'll we'll have a podcast. We'll have you back, and we'll, I'll tell you my theory about why everybody needs five boats. You got five. There's very important reasons for this, but beyond that. Um, so let's talk about these individual events here, because I don't want to, you know, we're going to run short on time here in a little bit. But let's start, you mentioned Ukraine, let's talk about, you know, what's happening in Ukraine. And everybody thinks about it from a security standpoint, it seems whether or not they're worried or not, from nuclear war, you know, all Armageddon, you know, all this other stuff. But what about it from a fiscal sense? What's the what's the threat or the opportunity that this poses for us? How do you see it? Yeah, I mean, obviously, everyone's talking about sanctions now. Um, and I think that generally speaking, I'm supportive of the actions we've taken. I'm maybe a little bit more skeptical than most as to what the ultimate effectiveness or impact of those sanctions may be. I mean, historically, anyway, um, sanctions haven't been very effective at changing outcomes and, and, you know, from regimes that we don't like. Now, obviously, you know, the measures that we've imposed and that we've seen the Western world impose are unlike anything we've done in the past. So it's a little hard to know, right? We're in uncharted territory. I think the thing that people aren't thinking enough about with respect to the war in Ukraine is that, you know, when it ends, uh, because it eventually will, there's a question of, well, one, how quickly can we sort of roll back the measures that we've taken? But also, what may be the long-term consequences of, of some of these actions, right? I mean, Taking Russia off SWIFT, for example, well, does that result in, you know, more people going over to alternatives of SWIFT, for example, and weaken our ability to use that as a tool in the future? I think that there hasn't been enough ink spilled to thinking about what some of these consequences might be. And, you know, and there are other things too, right? I mean, if you think about energy markets, for example, and, you know, what that might mean for inflation and, and you know, even when the conflict ends, is it just going to be, we're going to go back to normal and Germany's going to start buying Russian Russian fossil fuels again? You know, well, probably not, right? Or so there's a there's a lot, I think, that, to, to unpack that we just don't know. And I think that sometimes people like to separate the international relations questions from the economic questions. And uh, they're very much related and they're related arguably even more this time around because of the measures that we've taken have primarily been economic in nature, right? We haven't put boots on the ground. And so I think there needs to be a lot more thought paid to to what the impact will be over the long term. And it's and it's very important, of course, given that we're already facing pretty significant economic challenges independent of, of the war in Ukraine. And it's hard to see how this ends. I mean, you have 
the Jefferson, I'm talking about Jefferson a lot because we got to talk about the 19th century at some point, but uh, the Jefferson and Madison administrations really starting this, like this trend of nonviolent kind of retaliatory tariffs and sanctions, and they don't work for them back then, but they also get lifted and they, there's an end to like these conflicts. There's an end or there's a recognition that they didn't work and then they lift it, you know, unless Russia does everything America wants, the political environment at home if there's a vote or if there's an administration that lifts these uh, sanctions, I can see another the other party being very aggressive towards them on that, or at least some parts of them, and making it hard for you to lift them. And I don't see how this ends in any other way, except either Russia looks like they get what they want, or at least it's kind of a muddy situation, but we definitely didn't get what we want. So how do you get out of this? How do you untangle your you know, involvement with these sanctions politically yeah. at home? Yeah, it's a re- it's a good question. I mean, you know, that's a that's a question that goes even beyond I think my expertise, right? I mean, that's a that's a question maybe for some of the more you know international relations minded experts. But I think that you know, I mean, I'll give you another good example. Of this is you know changing trade status, for example, right? Like we just basically decided, you know, hey, we're gonna we're gonna rethink our trade status with Russia, and you know, in the short term, I mean, again, a lot of these measures. You know, personally, I'm very supportive in part because I don't know what the better alternative is. In turn, you know, I, I certainly think it's preferable to, to again to putting, you know, sending over, you know, American soldiers or or you know having NATO engage in militarily. But I do think there's generally speaking, trade is a good thing, right? Countries that trade together tend not to go to war together. And of course, there are exceptions to that. I mean, and we can talk about, you know, why why Russia may have been acting differently and so on. But um, but generally speaking, I think that you know it, it does that that kind of stuff does concern me because. Again, when this conflict does reach some sort of conclusion in a military a military sense, are we going to just go back to then trading with Russia as we did before? Probably not. So, what does that look like? What are the other like the, the implications for you know Russia's trade with other countries? So, I don't I don't have the answers to that question. Um, but I but I think that um, what I do know is that we should be thinking about these things as we're taking the actions that we're taking, and not just going and operating sort of under the under the guise of whatever's best in the short term is going to be totally fine in the long term. I think that I'm sure there are people who are thinking about those questions, but there's, again, in, in the public discourse over, over the conflict, um, it's been much more, I think, focused on, you know, sort of punitive rationales and not about what this might mean for our own long-term, uh, you know, economic well-being. Yep. And I mean, maybe Crimea can help too, because, you know, Putin just took it there's a lot, kind of a lot of beating of the chest, but it kind of was like, now he's got it. What are we going to do? But we're running out of time here, but I want to touch on two other topics and that's inflation, which is a big deal. And uh, the pandemic as well. And those two might be intertwined. So I was going to say those are related topics for sure. Yeah, I mean, what do you, what, what do you think about that? How are they related? What's the challenge they pose to us fiscally and how yeah. can we uh, kind of overcome that challenge? Yeah. So, I mean, maybe it's helpful to talk a bit about the pandemic first. I mean, you know, in the early stages of the pandemic, we had obviously really expansionary fiscal policy and we had really loose monetary policy. And, you know, you had a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of libertarians and conservatives saying, oh, my God, we're going to have immediate inflation. And what they missed, in my view, was that there was a massive decline in demand at the same time as this stuff was happening. So, sure, we had supply chain issues, but even before there were, you know, so-called lockdowns and whatnot, you had people who were unwilling to go shopping in stores, right, or eating in restaurants or whatever. There was just a massive uh, decline in demand. But when you think about the course of the pandemic, a lot of the actions that were taken 
put a lot of money in people's hands, right? We saw savings increase dramatically. And so you had people, you know, not everyone, of course, there was, there was a ton of harm, um, but you had a lot of people who were able to actually save up and find themselves in a better, a better financial position during the course of the pandemic. And so now you get to the point where you have vaccines, you have sort of things generally winding down, not entirely, of course, but people are at least more comfortable to engage in, you know, traditional economic activity that they weren't over the course of the last two years. And they find themselves sitting on more cash than they otherwise would have had. And, oh, yeah, we also have these supply chain issues. Well, all of those things are a total recipe for, for inflation. And what's been frustrating to me is that, you know, it seems like so many people basically made up their minds on their feelings of, with respect to the pandemic and what the proper policy response was, you know, back in March of 2020. And they didn't really change during the course of the pandemic as the reality on the ground changed. And so, you know, when you look at policies, frankly, under both presidents, right? I mean, you had Trump going and forgiving student loans, for example, for, you know, the vast majority of the second half of his, of his presidency. You have, obviously, the American Rescue Plan that Biden implemented as sort of his signature achievement early on in his presidency. And so I think both parties have kind of operated under this assumption that, again, they can spend, they need to spend in response to the pandemic, but they didn't really think about, well, what stage are we really at? And then you combine the fact that, of course, the Federal Reserve has been really accommodated as well. And you just had all these things, I think, coming together. Uh, you know, it was, it was the perfect recipe for inflation. And so I think that, you know, my contention is that we are just like no one person really caused it. Uh, I think it's going to be very difficult for any one person to go and roll things back. I mean, you know, people look back on, you know, Volcker, for example, in the early 80s or late 70s, and, uh, you know, and all we need to do is just raise interest rates. Well, there was a huge cost to doing so. And it's unclear to me that, you know, Powell is really going to have the tools and the toolkit to be able to go and bring things under control, especially when, you know, it, it frankly probably requires coordination from policymakers around the world, right? Uh, you know, central bankers and, and uh, you know, just uh, governments making sure that their that their fiscal policies are not are not as expansionary as they have been. So I think that this is going to be with us for a little while. And I think it's going to depend a lot on, you know, uh, I mean, it sounds stupid, of course, on the economist, but, you know, supply and demand and really how much cash people have at their disposal. But it's not something that's going to end overnight. And, you know, if I if I had the ability to maybe make a more concrete prediction than that, than that I'd probably be, you know, running my own hedge fund, maybe than uh, <laughs> rather than working in policy. But uh, but I think I think generally speaking, no one should have been surprised by this. Well, if you if you get your own hedge fund, invest in my my boats. Just don't forget about that. It's a good thing. It's good. Sometimes, you know, there's other things than returns like aesthetics, you know, mental happiness health of mind and soul and spirit. Those things I mean, are really there are a lot important. of hedge funds out there. I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's one already investing in boats. Who knows? Well, if you're, if you're a hedge fund out there and you're investing in boats and you need somewhere to put them, just give me a call. We can work something out. Although my wife may not like a boat in the front yard, but we'll, <laughs> we'll figure that out. We'll cross that bridge when we need to, but okay. Well, I think we're, that does it at least for now, we're kind of out of time. But uh, but thanks for joining us. You, I think you have enlightened our discussion more than we have usually enlightened it. And I am very grateful for that. And hopefully you've given our listeners something to think about. You've certainly helped me to better understand this issue and, and to kind of create a new framework for it to make sense of it moving forward. So I, I really do appreciate that. And if it doesn't change, 
then I'm going to hold you accountable for this moving forward. As well. <laughs> That's right. It's all, it's all my fault. It's all your fault at this point. I mean, and if not, maybe we can try to get you to be the Fed chair. You know, it's not the end of the world. Powell worked at the Bipartisan Policy Commission for a little bit before. So, you know. Let's let's do it. Maybe probably a good gig. Maybe that's a good initiative that we can uh, we can go. If we if you do it, I want to intern for you. I think that would be fun, <laughs> and then I can speak on these issues with expertise and authority because I work at the Federal Reserve. But yeah, thanks for being with us today, and this has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.